Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. From Morgan Stanley, joining us in New York, Jennifer Saran. Jennifer, go through the numbers for me. What are we looking at? Um, well, I think the first number everyone likes to look at is fixed income trading, and that was a little bit of a miss. Uh, they came in at $808 million. Analysts were thinking it'd be closer to $1.02 billion. Um, and so, you know, that's been the case across Wall Street. You know, yesterday, Goldman also reported a miss. Um, now, this has been like an ongoing competition. Morgan Stanley really gaining some ground on Goldman, um, and it seems like maybe they slipped a little bit this quarter. Uh, but they're up in early trading. And so I'm thinking that people have kind of shifted their focus a little bit um, and looked at their wealth management unit, which posted both uh, record income and record revenues um, that, you know, James Gorman made this huge bet yeah. back in 2009 when he bought Smith Barney. And it seems like maybe that's starting to show the results he wanted. And Jennifer, Morgan Stanley, of course, less dependent on fixed trading revenue than, say, a Goldman Sachs, much more dependent on the equity side of the bank. And equity yes. sales and trading revenue coming in at 192, the estimate 1.89 billion. So looking solid there and looking solid elsewhere. James Gorman is doing a terrific job here. And we spend a lot of time talking about Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan, Lloyd Blankfein, at Goldman Sachs. But Gorman's like the quiet man on Wall Street, delivering some pretty solid results for Morgan Stanley. Yeah, he has a strong bench. You know, he um, he promoted Ted Pick there. Um, he's now their global head of sales and trading after Ted Pick uh, turned around the equities business. And so it seems like he just knows who to surround himself with, maybe. And so uh, that unit has actually, um, like I said, gained ground on Goldman in, in the last couple of years. And, and um, is it's really starting to show the results that, that the bank had promised. Is it fair to say, Jennifer, that Morgan Stanley's more of a UBS than it is a Goldman Sachs, or are we not there yet? I don't think we're quite there yet. I mean, I th I still think um, I think it's still a trading shop. I think yeah. I mean, obviously, wealth management has become increasingly important to the bank, um, but I think that they are still um, still thought of as a trading shop, at least by investors. Bloomberg's very own Jennifer Saran and by investors this morning, some confidence after the numbers. The stock up by around about one full percentage point in the pre-market. I'm Jonathan Farrow in New York City for Bloomberg Surveillance over in the city of London all week. Bloomberg's Tom King. Good morning, Mr. King. Good morning, John Farrell. Interesting to see Morgan Stanley there off of Goldman Sachs yesterday. It'll be sliced and diced through the day. But what really what this is about, whether you are part of Global Wall Street, whether you're just an informed investor, or we thank all of you listening across a large, wide body of age groups. Uh, and I've run into a lot of people, John, in London who, you know, they're not really in the game, but they just love listening to us. And we say good morning. And we do that with Bill Blaine of Mint Partners. And we can go right to the heart of the matter, Bill Blaine which is whether it's Morgan Stanley or somebody listening on a street 70 miles north of London, it's about volatility. There's no vol there. There's no alpha. There's no dampening. There's no opportunity. The economists would say it comes down to lower potential GDP. Is this something we need to get used to? Well, that's very interesting you mentioned volatility because just the last few days and the beginning of last week and into this week, we are actually beginning to see volatility slightly ticking up. And that's going to present all kinds of opportunities, but also leaves people with an awful lot of work to do to make sure they're on the right side of that volatility if it's going to continue increasing. I think we're into something of a new market. 
Well, we're you know in something of a new market, and I guess there's a quiet to it. How does global Wall Street? How does the city? How does New York? How does Hong Kong? How do they adapt to this? Do you say to Jim uh, Gorman, James Gorman over at Morgan Stanley or Lloyd Blankfein, this is a one-off, it's a cyclical thing, you keep the game going, or do you start to really make structural changes in institutional Wall Street? Institutional Wall Street, of course, is, or as you call it, we would call it the city of London, of course, um, it's always changing, it's always adapting. Here in Europe, we are coping with uh, the effects of the imposition of new trading rules, MIFID II. Market uh, makers and investment banks all around the world are going to have to change when it comes to dealing with European clients. In terms of the way they structure their own business, though, they are going to be preparing for this usual cyclicality we see in in trading, fixed income and commodities um, results. We're going to see banks reestablish themselves in different areas to try and take advantage of where they perceive that market going. At the moment, you're absolutely right. The numbers have been very poor right across the board, but they will improve. Bill, who's getting this right right now, whether they're in Europe or on Wall Street in the United States? Which bank, which CEO has got this right, given the current regime we're working our way through? I don't think anyone really has it perfect yet. Uh, And it's very interesting to see that, John, uh, because... We are in this period that Tom's just described where zero vol has created this massive downturn in thick incomes. It's the person who can um, anticipate best and be positioned for the uptick when it comes. Now, when that uptick comes is the, the absolute question. Is it going to be a result of the inflation we were talking about earlier? Yeah. Is it going to be a result of the of us suddenly discovering that far from global-aligned macro growth, we actually roll into some kind of recession, which would trigger all kinds of market events. These are all vol-creating events, and that's when the smarter trading desks are going to be able to contribute substantial profits to the right investment bank. And, of course, that has ever thus been the problem. Well, so arguably, Bill, that's Goldman Sachs, ready to go, leveraged to a pickup in vol. When that story comes around, Goldman Sachs just deliver. But many people are questioning the firm's strategy. Bill, do you question the firm's strategy, or are you saying that Lloyd's doing this right? Wait patiently. I, in the coming quarters, things will change. Good good, oper- good call to try and get me to comment on any of the, the banks individually. But I don't think it would be fair for me to comment on any one bank in particular, but it is fair to say that the, shall we say, the benches on all the investment banks have changed in recent years. I certainly pick up from the clients we speak to, and my company is a large brokerage, but from the clients we speak to, they are finding that the service that they're getting from the investment banks over the last few years has changed. And that's because the investment banks don't want the high costs of having older, very expensive managers in place. They want to have younger, cheaper graduates doing the calls. They also want to cut down on the risk that they are willing to cover or to carry. And that's also been reinforced by the trading rules that have been put on them by the central banks and regulatory authorities. And as a result, the banks are far less responsive to change. And many of them look tired, as one of my clients said recently. That opens up loads of new opportunities for people to look at alternative ways of trading. Very quickly here on Sterling, do you have a call? We've had a huge variation on the show in the last couple of weeks. Right, and Sterling, one of the very interesting things is despite all the negativity in uh, the UK about Brexit and the Carillion event this week, 
sterling is strong. Why is that? I think it's because people are looking past the immediate news and are looking forward to the UK reversing the current decline that's apparent and a stronger, more productive economy emerging despite Brexit. Fascinating. Bill Blaine, thank you so much. We've been partners for the briefing this morning on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television uh, as well. How could it possibly be that one of the most acute, sharpest, persistent critics of modern American politics is in England? John Farrell would understand that. Of course, I'm talking about John Farrell. I'm also talking about Brian Class. He's at the London School of Economics. He made a modest splash a number of years ago with the Despot's Accomplice, followed it up with Donald Trump's attack on democracy uh, 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 aging eight weeks ago. It seems forever when you're publishing on the political milieu of the day, Dr. Class, it's just extraordinary how quickly it all blurs uh, by. If you were to rewrite the Despot's, uh, a Despot's Apprentice right now, what would the next chapter be? Uh, Probably about the politicization of rule of law and the recklessness with North Korea. Um, You know, I think it is truly remarkable this moment we're in where things seem like an uh, an eternity ago. And, you know, the the tweet uh, that Trump sent out about how his button was bigger than Kim Jong-un's was like nine days ago. You know, I mean, it seems like ancient history, and yet these things, our political moment is moving so quickly that yeah. people can't keep up. And, and what's interesting here, John Farrow, is Ambassador Gardner was with us, the former U.S. ambassador to the EU, yeah. and he went right to where Dr. Klass went to. He went right to Korea is the issue of the moment. And, and Dr. Klass, I think you bring up a really good point. Not only does nine days ago feel like a distant memory, I think we become obsessed around very specific things that maybe aren't too significant. So we become obsessed by a book called called Fire and Fury and the relationship between the President of the United States and, and Mr. Bannon. In the meantime, things are happening behind the scenes that don't get attention. So my question to you, Brian, is quite simple. What are we missing whilst we're distracted by things that might not mean too much? So I think what we're missing is the fact that there's a huge risk of an unpredictable crisis emerging. So every U.S. president in modern history has dealt with one shortly after taking office. President H.W. Bush dealt with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Clinton dealt with the Rwandan genocide and the Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia. Then you have George W. Bush with September 11th. uh, And Obama had to deal with the financial meltdown. Trump has amazingly made it about a year without any major severe international crisis that just dropped in his lap. And I think, you know, the world is a tumultuous and dangerous place. And that's where the stories like Fire and Fury actually come into play as relevant, is they show that, okay, what happens when this person who is clearly reckless, impulsive, and uh, has serious questions about their fitness for office swirling around them, even within their own party, has to deal with a major, serious, consequential international crisis. And that's where I think we are sort of uh, just deluding ourselves to believe that there will be no consequences to this presidency. So, Brian, I was listening to Gillian Tett at the Financial Times speak a couple of nights ago, and she compared the current situation to an Agatha Christie novel, whereby there's a big noise in the kitchen and everyone rushes towards the kitchen, but the murder takes place in the library. And we're constantly distracted by what's happening in the kitchen, but ultimately what is happening in the library is much more significant. Does that resonate with you too, Brian? 
So uh, yes and no. I mean, I think that absolutely we are distracted by small things, but I think that the small things captivate us because they speak to this larger truth, which is that the person in charge of the United States is both out of step with democratic values in the United States and is clearly unfit to be president. I mean, it's it's something where there's an, it's an open secret in Washington, and I don't even think it's that shocking of a claim to say that privately most Republicans would agree with that yeah. sentiment, and then they would publicly say okay. something different. But it's a democracy. And you're really, you know, Brian, everybody says, isn't he like 40 years older than he is? I mean, you're the young Turk of Democratic analysis to the supporters of the president. The guy won. He did. And I think it's important that the message he used resonated with people, right? I think there's absolutely legitimate grievances that Trump tapped into about the state of the economy and all of the aspects of his presidency that resonate with those people are important. But I think there's also a a, a factor of democracy where you have to also, once you're in power, respect the norms of the system, which he does not do. Um, and so I think, you know, over the long term, this recklessness, this abuse of, of democratic norms, basic checks and balances that he's engaging in yeah. are, well, are, are meaningful. When's the third book come out? Uh, actually, I have a, another book coming out. Uh, sick. <laughs> in that, that I co-wrote with uh, Professor Nick Cheeseman in Birmingham called How to Rig an Election, about election rigging around the world. So it's uh, it's, it's Well, a, yeah. excuse me, save the punchline. Did we rig the election in the United States looking back? So there wasn't election rigging in the United States, but I think that there was there's a chapter on international election meddling and hacking, yeah. uh, which is going to become the new normal. I mean, I just saw gerrymandering folks in the southern part of the United States where the congressman put his summer home into the new district. He, he did a little that's, yeah, so, that's positively British, isn't so it? So gerrymandering is a huge problem, and one of the things that I think is the hidden story about how uh, polarization has taken root in American politics and going to have consequences okay. uh, related to it for a long time is that the average right. margin of victory in 2016 was 37%. Well, it's mostly so, uncompetitive elections. We are so happy to have you into our London offices, Professor Class, Brian Class. Look for him, particularly out on Twitter, with whether you agree or disagree with him doesn't matter. It's just an intelligent news flow of debate and dialogue on these tumultuous times. In China, the big story, the economy sealing its first full-year acceleration since 2010. There's one man I always like to go to to talk China, and his name is Don Strassheim. He was for 12 years the former Merrill Lynch global chief economist. Then Mike Milken called, and he became the president of the Milken Institute. He is now the Evercore ISI senior managing director for China specifically. Don. Great to have you with us on the program to get your insight into numbers that a lot of people are always confused by. <laughs> For what do, sure. you, what do you make of Chinese GDP figures at the moment? Well, first thing I'd say, Jonathan, is they've been roughly flat now for six years in a row. Wiggle up and down in a tenth or two. This is implausible given all the things that have happened in China and happened around the world in markets that they serve. So we read these numbers, quite frankly, with uh, a sense of obligation more than a sense of uh, to learn that we're going to learn anything. It doesn't make sense, just looking in from 35,000 feet, that you can have the prospect of a real hard landing in 2016 and growth's okay. In 2017, real concerns about how they're going to sort out the debt pile and then growth's okay. What's happening, Dom? What levers are they pulling that makes things okay? Well, it is a command and control economy. Chinese economy was terrible in 2015, much worse 
than they ever reported. Uh, they did a lot of stimulus in their own political interest, anticipating the party congress and the handover in the end of uh, 2017. So that lifted the economy a lot in uh, 2017. A lot of that was infrastructure spending. You can't build a subway in a year. These are yeah. five-year uh, projects. So there's still some of that uh, going. But the longer-term prospects are for China's growth rate to slow year after year after year. So, Dom, we have these debt issues kind of bubbling underneath the economy. But at the same time, I was told that they would shift from the old economy dependent on exports to the world to an economy, the new economy, domestic consumption, etc. I still see a pronounced move in the old economy, an export-based growth through 2017. Is that what you see too? Uh, exports contributed more in 2017 than they did in 2016 in China. That part is true. But they also are making big changes within the industrial sector. Coal is going to zero, not just in China, worldwide. Well, That's important. The steel industry is going to migrate 90% out of China over the next uh, two or three decades to lower wage uh, countries, uh, India, Bangladesh, India, all the way to uh, Africa. So they're going to have issues with what are we going to do with these people? The 55-year-old guy that's been working at Wuhan Steel for 20 years is yeah. not going to get hired right, by right. Alibaba. Okay, we've got to rip up the script here. I mean, what you always do with that. When have I ever talked to Don Strazheim folks where I haven't ripped up the script? But we're doing it right now. You just said China's going to lose steel jobs. Professor Navarro out at Irvine, Secretary Ross down in Washington on his way to Davos with the president, all just sat up as they listened to surveillance and said, yeah, because those jobs are coming back to the United States. But that's not what you said, Don Strazheim. Critique the naivete of a bipartisan labor dynamic in manufacturing between the United States and China, given all of the multilateral realities of global labor. Um. I think what's going to happen, uh, Tom, is you're going to see this big push in China to the high-end, uh, high-value-added manufacturing. They call it Made in China 2025. So the irony of this is the U.S., uh, Northern Europe, Japan, to some extent Korea, have made their money in the last 40 years at the top end of manufacturing, all the high-tech stuff. Right. Now, China says, okay, look, these are the industries that we, China, want to become globally dominant in and have an oligopoly of state-owned enterprises that are globally efficient. I find that, a, that difficult, but they're setting up this competition that's going to make the U.S. and Japan and Northern Europe very okay. angry. So. Okay, let me translate that into Tom Keene talk. China wants to do a little Switzerland. Can you do that within a totalitarian regime? Um, the, 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 it's a great question, Tom. The obvious uh, sort it's of my answer. Only, it's my only good one of the day. <laughs> That's it. Jonathan doesn't say that. Anyway. Tom um, said it for us, yeah. Tom. <laughs> it's the only um, uh, uh they will use a lot of subsidies, a lot of um, special favors to lift those companies that they want to become uh, globally dominant um, as a replacement, quite frankly, 
for the innovation and the entrepreneurship um, that you would find in a yeah. modern market economy. And they have, quite frankly, I think, no yeah. interest. So, Don, we have this really interesting economy. situation set up. And Tom asked a really important question. We have a situation where the United States wants their jobs back in the old world, the old manufacturing world. And the Chinese are saying, OK, well, take we've got them. a problem with that, <laughs> but maybe you can take them because actually we'd like your value added manufacturing jobs anyway. That to me just spells tension for years and years to come. How is this going to play out? Because the big fear coming into 2017 was trade protectionism, more specifically from the U.S. side. But does the U.S. have a case here that it needs to protect itself from an overreach from China that's saying, we're coming after your jobs, the big ones, the well-paid jobs? I don't think Washington realizes yet that it is the jobs that the U.S. uh, favors that China wants. And they're all upset. We're going to bring coal back. We're going to bring back those steel jobs in Erie, Pennsylvania, and wherever. Um, China's going to say on those, take them. And the jobs that we think are going to be favored that we want are the ones that China wants to. This is is going to be a, a big tension builder. Washington says only America first. Xi Jinping says party first. So we have this situation now in which nobody is really thinking market economy. Xi Jinping surely is not. Okay, Don, you hung on every word at Davos last year when President Xi spoke. Review for us now is a great Chinese authority. What did the president of China say that President Trump has to bounce off of this year? Um, What he said was, uh, we China are prepared and ready to take over the global uh, uh, economic leadership that uh, Washington seems to no longer want. Now, this was before, as you know, this uh, you go there, before the inauguration and before the uh, Only America First uh, speech, my, my feeling is uh, Washington doesn't want to be the global leader and China is incapable of it. You can't be a leader unless you have followers. And I know of few countries that matter that think that economic leadership, uh, that's being the yeah. economic behavior in China is something that they want to emulate. Oh. This has been hugely valuable. Don Strassheim, thank you so much. Greatly Tom, appreciate nice it. Nice to talk ISI to you um, will Really, folks, somehow I feel we'll be talking to uh, Dr. Strassheim. Uh, more in the coming weeks as well. It is an important survey from the conference board. Bart Van Arkworth is right now on the mood of CEOs. It's something they routinely trot out, except this year, it goes to the heart of the great American uh, debate. Bart Van Ark has decades of experience, not only at parsing economics of America, but linking that into what the conference board does, which is the uh, behavioral mood, if you will, of what's going on. Bart, let me get right to the chase. We all know labor is tight. Why don't they just raise the wages? 
Good morning, Tom. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's one of the big questions. Why don't we do move faster in wage increases? Look, I, I think the issue was there were still enough people on the sidelines to uh, to be able to continue without wage increases. But frankly, this is going to change. What we see in this year's survey on CEO and CC challenges is that shortage of talent in particular, so the higher end of the skill range, is now the top concern for CEOs. Okay. Why don't they raise pay? Is, is it they, they're addicted to the 10-year economic slowdown, labor supply excess, and they just can't change the habit? Is there something different this time You know, I the think, way we've come out of every other slowdown? Yeah, you know, I think there's still another thing that we find in this survey is that there is an incredible hope that new technology and disruptive technology, which is the second important most concern that CEOs have, that that is going to sort of manage some of this. So instead of, you know, rapidly ramping up wages, there is a hope that actually technology might help to resolve part of these problems. But it's clearly not good enough. That's clear. And uh, I think wages are going to go up. That's certainly in our projections at the conference board, too. The tightness of the labour market would suggest they should at some point, but that has been the case for a long, long time now. But my question is related to the tax bill on wages. A lot of companies are choosing to pay bonuses instead of raising wages. We saw this with Apple in the last 24 hours, a bonus of, I think, $2,500 tied to stock. We've seen it with other companies as well. A slight lift to the minimum wage, maybe, but a big $1,000, $2,000, $2,500 bonus. Why are they choosing to pay a one-off bonus instead of a wage increase? You know, John, I think it's partly reflective of also the changes in the composition of the labor market. One of the things that we find in this survey also, when we look at sort of the challenges in human capital, is that there is a very sharp move towards making use of the, you know, the contingent workforce. So, you know, those are part-timers, but those are also outsourced and managed services and, you know, taking independence and self-employed on board. So I think, you know, uh, CEOs and CHROs in particular, who we also surveyed here, are beginning to look at all sorts of alternative alternative ways of making use of a combination of people and talent so rather clear, than just raising their to, wages. To be clear, by offering the bonus, you get the corporate PR in the nation's capital but it doesn't cost you because you're still going to use contingent labor. Is that what this is about? I think there's a part there's a part to this. But look, you know, we're also one other reason why I think companies are reluctant to raise wages very rapidly is that we're sort of in this very expanded phase of the business cycle. Raising wages now, it's not easy you know, to let them fall again if the economy is going to slow sometime down the road. So I think I think there's a much more broader thinking about how you can make use of good talent than just by raising wages. But again, as I said, I mean, the conference what we definitely believe that wages are going to increase, particularly at the higher end of the talent scale. Well, can you can you give me a percentage? I, I, I mean, is is it going to be one or two percent squeezing out wage gains, or is it you know back to the sixties and seventies where you know things got a little wild, a little effervescence, exuberant to say the least. You know, if you look at the last year or so, you know, depending on what wage uh, indicator you're looking at in the United States, but wage increases have been between two and three percent, which is not huge, but you know, it's not it's not insignificant. But aren't either. they spread out, Bart, over people going up zero or negative one? And other people garnering real tangible gains? Absolutely, Tom. Totally. And that's why that's why you're seeing this much broader approach that that companies are taking towards the labor market at the higher end at the, you have to pay skill premiums and companies are going to do this you can just solve this by not seeing your wage bill increasing but i do think that there is a much broader thinking about how you can combine the needs for talent with what you have to pay as a company to bring that talent in bart finner thank you so much for the conference board an important new survey really quite timely 
and, and really, uh, John, I should say, timely as well into all the surveys that we see before the meetings of the World Economic Forum. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.